The second way that we should sort of expand our imaginative capacity for the way that we're able to conceptualize the experience of disease is in understanding that people are agents of their own experiences and influence positively the way that somebody experiences their disease. That is worth something and that counts for something and that is not reportable information. You can't put it on a statistic or you can't put it on a graph uh, and say, you know, wow, we reduced your this level of hormone by this much, therefore this drug is effective, but will help kind of dismantle some of these uh some of the friction that some people of color and some indigenous people have towards clinical medicine. I think clinical medicine needs to kind of diversify what, how it thinks disease is experienced because the way that it currently does is it's not, it's not that effective. Welcome to a new podcast mini-series from Centric Lab on the role of information, decolonization, and informed consent in the healthcare industry in COVID-19. Over the three episodes, Lab Director Araceli Camargo talks with three brilliant medics from University College London. They break down what is a vaccine, how do the different ones work, the importance of decolonizing the West view on medicine and care, and the need for the healthcare and medical profession to change his often supremacist approach to knowledge. A great takeaway from this series for me, as I listened to it and I edited, is that communication is everything. And whilst innovation in the healthcare industry and technology is all the rage, greater investment in the so-called soft skills of healthcare will lead to greater population health outcomes. This series was made possible by our Patreon supporters, to whom we're very grateful. Our patrons support independent research for the people, free from prejudice and politics about place and health. If you like this show and believe in supporting work like it, please head over to patreon.com forward slash centriclab and donate whatever you can. In return, your donations provide you access to the Urban Health Council's reports, studies, events and more. The links are in the show notes. Now, over to Araceli for the show where this episode focuses on the COVID vaccine. Okay, welcome everyone. So let's start with introductions. Tell us your name and what you are studying at university and also what university you are studying at. Hi, uh, I'm Manaswini and I am a final year student studying human sciences at University College London. I'm Sabine Ruziz. I'm a fourth year integrating medic from Liverpool, but I'm studying history and philosophy of science and medicine in UCL this year. Hi, uh, my name is Maryam. I'm a third year medical student intercalating in medical anthropology at UCL as well. Okay, brilliant. Thank you for that, guys. So for our listeners, we are going to be going through a really awesome and expansive conversation about the vaccine process, about the vaccine itself, and about informed consent. What all of that means in terms of helping the recovery, specifically an equitable recovery of COVID. So let's start with the basics. So let's start with what is an RNA vaccine and how does it compare to a live vaccine? So um, Manas, you want to take us um, through that? Yes, sure. So there are obviously many different approaches to how vaccines are made. And the RNA or mRNA approach is one of the approaches that has been talked a lot about during the pandemic, and rightly so because the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are both RNA vaccines. 
So the whole intention behind a vaccine is to introduce an element of the pathogen into your body so that your natural immune system um, and its defenses can kick in to build up B cells or antibodies, as we're widely come to uh, talk about, to help amp up and speed up the immune response um, in the event that you actually get COVID-19. Okay, so basically to start with, mRNA stands for messenger ribonucleic acid. And it, RNA is made of the same elements that DNA is made up of. And the only difference is that RNA is single-stranded, whereas uh, DNA is double-stranded. There are some other minor, minor differences, but this is um, the big one. So with RNA vaccines, these companies have decided to take an, a different approach to introducing that part of COVID-19 into your body. And what they have done is taken the RNA instructions to create the COVID-19 spike protein, which is um, important for SARS-CoV-2 to enter into human cells. And we have introduced that particular mRNA instruction into our bodies so that our cells can start producing that spike protein. This is a very beneficial approach because you're not actually introducing the virus. You're letting our own body create a part of our SARS-CoV-2. Um, and once our body starts recognizing that, it'll realize, okay, this is not something that's supposed to be in here and start creating antibodies against that spike protein. So in the case that SARS-CoV-2 actually enters our body, our immune system is prepared to deal with that. This is different from a live vaccine or live attenuated vaccine in that in a live attenuated vaccine, you take parts of the actual virus, basically a weakened version of the virus to introduce into your body. And the difference, the main difference here is with the mRNA approach, we don't even have to worry about the whole vaccine, uh, the whole virus entering our body. It is just our own body producing a part of the virus. While like the word RNA can sound a bit intimidating and confusing, and because it sounds so similar to DNA, it may feel like your own DNA is being altered in some way, but that is not the case at all. It is just using instructions, RNA instructions, but uh, creating a protein using our body's own machinery. So yeah, that is the main difference between um, a live vaccine and a mRNA vaccine. Go ahead, Miriam. Yeah, that was a really brilliant explanation. To add, uh, just because I think you touched on a really important point about this idea that's going around, especially on social media, that the vaccines manipulate your DNA or they're going to your DNA. I think it's really important to clarify that um, the RNA that is present in these vaccines is as it, it behaves in, in normal ways, similar to the RNA that your body naturally produces, which means that it, it enters the cells, but it doesn't necessarily enter the nucleus, which is where your DNA would actually be. And RNAs are simply instruction manuals for the production of these proteins. So they are not necessarily entering the nucleus itself, which is where your DNA would be. Um, and the second important point is uh, that RNA is actually transient. So it's only around for minutes, hours, and maximum days. So it gets shredded up naturally, and it's a temporary molecule, and it's a temporary message. Um, so it doesn't really have the biological capacity to kind of permanently create these massive sort of changes to your DNA, and it doesn't have access it isn't designed at least to have access to your DNA, at least not in the way that is being talked about right now on social media. 
So that I just felt like that was worth mentioning. Great. Thank you, Miriam. Selena, did you want to add anything in terms of the mechanisms of how the mRNA works? My point is more like broad about like vaccines, which is I think is an important point, is about how vaccines like work and what our body's normal response is to a vaccine. So a vaccine is given to us to provide a blueprint of what um, an, like an actual virus is while it's actually but a safe alternative like a safe blueprint that isn't contagious so our natural response to infection is actually to create uh, to have a fever to have symptoms of a virus for example which is why when we get a, um, a vaccination which we get the symptoms towards it so we have the fever we have the headache we have chills all the, all these kind of things these are normal responses to fevers uh, sorry, two viruses, sorry. So regardless of the mechanism of action, of whether it's mRNA or um, live attenuated, they are um, constructed in a way that is safe for patients to not have a contagious virus, um, but to have our, um, our body create the fighter cells that we need and the memory cells that prevent further and um, possibly worse reactions in the future. That's what a vaccine is supposed to do. And that is what um, mRNA live attenuated vaccines, they both do. Uh, they just work in different ways and they create the, the response that we need, which is the fever. And then the, in the second response, it will be um, perhaps a worse fever, which is faster. And the, then the, second resp- or the third response will be something that's very like a very little response because we have the memory cells, we have the fighter cells, that have been based on the blueprint from the two, first two vaccinations. Um, that's what I wanted to say. Cool. Thank you, Selena, for that. So I'm just going to put a little pause there because we're going to go into the side effects and then I'm going to bring Manasmini and um, I think Miriam as well wanted to say something to to what you just said, Selena. But just because, just for the audience to really simplify is... I will, let's see if I can break it down in three points and you guys can correct my summary. But the first point of summary from Selena is that the vaccination process, it is there to create a blueprint, regardless of whether it's mRNA or RNA or a live vaccine. To that, our body always has a, a physiological response because something new and or foreign is being recognized as coming into our body. And those are the natural reactions such as fever, headache, possibly nausea, and even fatigue, right, that we're, that we're seeing as those first set of side effects. The second thing is that it doesn't alter your actual DNA because it doesn't go to the nucleus or the center of the cell, which is where a lot of cellular operations lie. So it isn't having a permanent change. And then the third thing to look at is that it's giving an instruction. By that, it is telling the body to produce this protein that is acting as the antigen to COVID. Um, I don't know if you guys at home remember those pictures of what the COVID virus looks like, that it has those spikes. One of the things that it does is that it, it connects into your cells. And that is what the RNA is trying to do is, is impede that connection to happen or disrupt that connection to happen. But yet people are hearing the news stories and they do, I think we have an obligation to hear them of people getting blood clots from the AstraZeneca, of very healthy people having complications. And can you guys then explain why those complications 
if there are already theories as to why those complications could be happening and how that doesn't necessarily mean, again, that you are, that COVID is doing this, that we're not getting COVID as part of our, as part of this specific solution. And then we'll add any other points that are missing from this section and learning exactly about what the, what the vaccine does. So does anybody want to chime in in terms of why those additional side effects are happening? With any vaccine that is created, there's always a possibility of having side effects because every time when anything is created in a lab, uh, its effects cannot be fully understood until they're applied on a large scale to many people and tested on many people, trialed. And as we know, with COVID, a lot of the testing has been done quite quickly. So it is, and the virus continues to evolve. And there's a lot of things that are still unknown about how the virus operates. So when it comes to creating a vaccine, there people, scientists are working on very limited amount of information. So it is inevitable that there may be some side effects that weren't caught on in these trials. But I think what's important to really keep in mind is that side effects are really a part of any sort of medical innovation that is conducted. And for example, one of the things that are brought up a lot is looking at, for example, birth control pills. Uh, they have a long, long, long list of side effects. Yet many, many women uh, around the world use birth control pills. Uh, and it is, it's really important to frame um, these side effects in a uh, side effects that are coming up in a responsible way the we have to understand how many people are getting affected by these side effects and how that compares to the overall um efficiency of the vaccine in general okay cool thank you Madison. i think miriam wanted to chime in I think just to clarify the differences between the AstraZeneca vaccine and the, uh, for example, the Pfizer vaccine, which differ in how the actual contents of the vaccine itself. So Pfizer and Moderna, for example, use synthetic mRNA, whereas the AstraZeneca vaccine relies on um, a modified adenovirus. So they disable a virus and then kind of use it as a container or a vector to insert the information. So the, in terms of the explicit difference between the, the vaccines is that one is based on a vector-based technology and one isn't. So not to say that there is an explicit causal relationship, because I think Manasvani is right in terms of we need to talk about this information in context, and we also need to frame it responsibly. But I think it's important to, to clarify that these vaccines actually have a diff, slightly different kind of technology behind them, which is maybe why you see a particular type of side effect with one and not with the other. But at the same time, I think that it doesn't mean that, you know, you have to pretend that these side effects are or are not happening. I don't think it's it's our place just yet without the evidence, I think, to say something is explicitly causal or not. But what we can do I, is be um, kind of truthful when giving people information that even though there is maybe a statistical probability that a particular vaccine might cause a clot or not cause a clot, people have to understand that they are fully in control of the decisions that they make um, and that they shouldn't feel pressured or shouldn't feel 
they shouldn't feel like if if you don't if you're hesitant or if you're questioning the vaccine that that makes you anti-vax or that just makes you less intelligent or that makes you whatever it is that people are calling vaccine hesitant individuals these days. So um, I think it was it's important to to kind of firstly clarify that there is a slight technological difference between those vaccines and maybe that is why we're seeing a difference in the reactions. But at the same time, that there isn't so much information yet. Um, to kind of give people a satisfactory explanation at this point. Great. Thank you for that. Um, We are going to come into the conversation of informed consent, which is, I think, the anchoring part of the conversation that we're having. But before we move on to the to the next section, Manasini, do you want to do you want to quickly chime in? Yeah, just to say that Miriam made some fantastic points and I absolutely um, agree with um, everything she said. I think, again, with trying to be transparent about what's happening with the vaccines, it's important to understand that science, contrary to popular belief, isn't some Bible that's written and once it's written, it cannot be touched. Science is an iterative process. People are just finding out about um, new new technologies and new methods and new properties of the virus every single day. So whenever these side effects are reported and um, talked about, it's important to understand that Not everyone has all the answers, but it's important to make sure that every development is responsibly reported to to the general public. Exactly. Yes, that I think that is the core of of this is that we need to continue to hold the scientific bodies that are creating these vaccines accountable. And that goes with better journalism that is not either sensationalist, but it is focused on the accuracy of reporting of the people who might be suffering um, these side effects. And also that accountability, I think it's important to keep science honest and that it doesn't force us to also accept these side effects as a necessary, which I think, especially as you mentioned, um, Manasini, in terms of the uh, birth control, there's a lot of side effects in the birth control pills that really we shouldn't be living not in not in this current age, but we are forced to because again, science isn't being held accountable. Be sure to join us on the next show on the need to decolonize our approach to healthcare. And if you've liked what you've heard and want to support more conversations like it, please head over to patreon.com forward slash Centric Lab. And thank you very much to our three brilliant medics on these conversations.